0: y'all you're listening to in the corner back by the woodpile
1: i'm spun counter guy thanks for stopping by Welcome to our fourth conversation with musician, poet, and thinker, Steve Scott. On this episode, we're going to learn the backstories of a few more songs, hear a tribute to Exit Records' Randy Layton, talk about Nagasaki and Hiroshima bombing-inspired art, and get a quick history lesson on old English gospel mystery plays. We start by briefly discussing Mr. Scott's composition, Minor Characters, which was also the title of a book written by Joyce Johnson, Mr. Scott begins by explaining who this Miss Johnson was. Minor characters, only a small to play.
0: She married, or was involved with, or married to Jack Kerouac, and she wrote her book as, uh, a sort of a, uh, speaking up for some of the women who were partners to beat writers, or women writers who were involved in the beat movement, who were kind of getting a bit overlooked uh, at the time, uh, perhaps somewhat downplayed in the overall narrative of the, uh, the beatnik phenomenon. She writes about her relationship with Kerouac, and it's a lot. It's a hugely long time since I read it. I mean, we, I mean, I wrote the song in the '80s, so mm-hmm. I read the book somewhere back there. So at least at one level, that was what the song was about. But I also had some friends who were going through things, and uh, I took fragments of their situation and wove them into the song. But the title definitely came from the book, and the songs. Uh, overall sort of apologetic to whoever I was writing about at the time was, do not see yourself as a minor character.
1: You you use the phrase again in the song Emotional Tourist. Was there a connection between the two songs or was that just a happenstance?
0: No, that was just me being devious. (laughs) Uh, Just creating sort of subterranean frames of reference or tunnels between songs. Put me down as a lonesome traveler write me off as a minor character well
1: while we're on the subject of emotional tourist what was that about
0: well that drew again threads from sort of situations i was involved in but uh, at its at its most public the song was I was trying to follow on from Love in the Western World. The Love in the Western World character was a severely dislocated individual who was, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places, basically, you know, discotheques and clubs and what have you. It was like a picture of a kind of a nihilistic, amoral, meaningless environment or universe in which even... The language used to describe the universe was not reliable language, hence the song Tower of Babel. And there was love in the Western world. With the emotional tourist, I just wanted this image of someone who was floating, as it were, across the surfaces of different cultural environments and social environments. The phrase emotional tourist came to me. I was in England for a few months in uh, 1983 as a result of trying to uh, untangle the red tape around my desired permanent residence in this country. And while I was there, I I think I read an interview with David Bowie. I know the phrase came from uh, a David Bowie interview, and it was around the time that David Bowie's album, Lodger, came out. viewer was pressing Bowie on his musical and his songwriting choices and they didn't accuse him but they asked him if he thought he was being a bit of an emotional tourist and the phrase stuck for me and so I thought okay I'm gonna I'm gonna build a song around this phrase and I'm gonna draw on my own travel experiences and my experiences in England uh at the time to create layers of reference and the imagery in that, in that song. And so I drew upon my experiences in England. Um, I mean, I did this kind of this fake world of Susie Wong kind of Oriental thing in the first verse. By the time we got to the second verse, I was drawing upon my experiences, my actual experiences in Berlin couple of years previously where I was in a bar and everyone was listening to Elvis Costello I'm beer in, a bar in rage on the i see children and snapping their fingers in a vision i could see them marching in the verse where i'm talking about being in a taxi cab and children coming up uh, begging at the window i'd seen that i'd experienced that in uh, in Delhi, India. so I would, by now I was drawing specifically on fragments of memories and images of experiences in different different countries and in different cultures. And also by the time you get to that like that very last verse, where it talks about um, technicolor guts spilling on the living room floor, I had just seen, this is in England, the film Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, in which David Bowie starred uh, with the soundtrack by Rushi Sakamoto. Based on the Lawrence Vanderpost uh, short story, um, The Seed and the Sower, I was thinking of the, the samurai code of honor or the, or the code of honor that one popularly associates with some of that culture and the ritual disembowelment. And so I put the song out there because the line, you know, television with its code of honor, Technicolor guts spilling on the living floor or whatever it was. You know, I, of course, had people writing to me and saying, you know, news shows don't shoot in Technicolor when they're... Um, Uh, recording these atrocities in different parts of the world. Apparently it's a different film stock. But I thought Technicolor sounded quite nice, so... I didn't take too much offence to the fact that people were writing in. I just noted with some interest and hilarity that people... That's the sort of thing that people wrote in about uh, around that song. So that was Emotional Tourist. Stuff I was dealing with at the time. um, A phrase taken from a David Bowie interview. A film David Bowie starred in that uh, I drew from, plus fragments of travel journals from Germany and from India. And I kind of put them all together, and that's what the song was. This dislocated individual, basically floating from situation to situation, uh, never getting really beyond the surface of what he was looking at, and always looking for a way of
1: escape. So the character's not... Maybe he is feeling like a slight bit of empathy, but he doesn't try to. He wants to. He's kind of well,
0: kind of like psychically numb at a very deep level, mm-hmm. uh, and wants to be empathic, mm-hmm. but um, not really. Would much sooner be beamed up out of this global village, as it were. <laughs>
1: So an, another song I wanted to ask you about is like, "Something's Got to Change." First of all, of course, I'd like to know what what inspired the song, but also the the recording of it.
0: Um, I'm glad you asked that, which, of course, is my way of saying I'm not sure I remember. <laughs> um, <laughs> firstly, it was it was one of those songs, like different kind of light or like Heaven Hears the Heart that Breaks, or like Memory, Baby, You, the, someone says, hey, you need to write, write something a bit more uh, direct and um, poppy and engaging. So I thought, oh, okay. So I, I wrote that, but again, all the, um, the lines are quite sort of careless, kind of sloppy allusions to book titles. I might've read half, half of or seen in a bookstore or something plus other stuff I mean there was, not, there was nothing specific going on in that song other than the general feeling that something has got to change things can't stay the same something's got to change uh, which is like pretty generic sentiment mm-hmm. but it seemed to be an, a nice way of capping all the stuff that I was throwing out there during the verse portion of the song I wander lonely through That no one claims. But what are these words worth? I struggle with metaphors.
1: Now we talk about the track Shadow Play. Is that a direct reference to the Shadow Puppet Theaters? Yeah, it was.
0: Okay. It was. I'm using that as a metaphor for describing this somewhat tortured relationship. It was like I made it up. It was like fiction. I wasn't writing about anybody mm-hmm. particularly. But, um, you know, the first verse where you're kind of tearing yourself away from the person and wandering lonely through the crowd of questions that no one. But what are these words worth? I struggle with metaphors mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. It was just a, a, you know, a song about a, a, a doomed relationship and someone wondering if they were fated to be well, you know, were they just puppets or were they just shadows or were they really feeling these things? So, in a sense, it continued that sense that those issues of numbness and psychic and emotional dislocation that w- were present, or I'd like to think were present, uh, in s- songs like Emotional Tourist and things like that. It's a bit sadder because. A, it's sad because I'm yodeling at the end, but um, it's sad in a different more, you know, mm-hmm. way. Because when it started out trying to be sad, but then I ended up. I mean, it's not even a proper song. It's like a verse, mm-hmm. a chorus, then a different verse that sounds like a bad imitation of Bob Dylan, <laughs> except except the lyrics are really good. <laughs> um, I'm not saying Bob Dylan's lyrics are bad. I'm just saying that uh, you know, I really like the lyrics in that, right. that
1: it's okay. fake
0: second verse slash middle eight section. <laughs> and then uh, there's that instrumental section where Jim Abeg is playing something. He's playing a guitar synthesizer like in the studio. He's sitting at the board. He's playing a gu- some sort of guitar synthesizer. And I'm playing around with the, um, the controls of it while he's tracking. Mm. so that we, we're getting some, some random shaping of the sounds. So I was, I was happy about that as well. I heard you speak my name when you were talking It's just as if you had the whole
1: thing planned And next, Sound of Waves.
0: Mike Rowe produced a cassette of me thrashing on acoustic guitar and mumbling some like nonsense lyrics but i had a chorus something about leaving a town and at the time i called the song last exit to brooklyn which was you know the hubert selby jr novel but when i was driving around at some point i just found myself singing da 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 the sound of waves, da, 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 da. And then I, I wrote the song fairly quickly, and it was around the time that, you know, I was fascinated by, you know, I was reading Shusaku Endo, and I was reading other Japanese novelists, including Yukio Mishima, who wrote The Sound of Waves, uh, which the Yukio Mishima novel uh, is a sort of a simple young man, young girl, fishing village, romance novel but I thought it was just a a great title and I kept the lyrics kind of open enough that people would I mean people come up and explained to me and I've gone with it you know it's fine that's good that's certainly a way of working with these lyrics and it's kind of what I wrote from you know the idea of Peter and Jesus uh, on the beach uh, whether Jesus is first calling Peter early in Luke or whether Jesus is restoring and recommissioning Peter uh, at the end of the Gospel of John, that kind of that beachside encounter in which Jesus is asking Peter, if you know you truly love me, go feed my sheep uh, and those kinds of things. And people have told me that's what the song's about. Mm-hmm. And that's fine because that can be part of what was going through my mind as I was writing it. But the actual title, and some of the imagery comes from the Yukio Mishima novel.
1: Randy Layton has been a big advocate for not only your music, but a few other artists that their recordings almost got lost so to speak, to the vaults. So do you want to speak on him a little bit?
0: I do, mainly in terms of like massive appreciation for the very things that you just said. I mean, somebody else and I were talking about Randy like the other month, Jeffrey of Low Fidelity, the guys that do a lot of the 77 stuff. He and I were talking by email about the contribution that Randy Layton had made and was making, to the Steve Scott myth and legend. Um, <laughs> basically, it, it's, it's kind of a, a tortured tale, but it goes quite quickly. Uh, I'm in this country, then I go to India. We're talking about like 81 or something. I go to India, Southeast Asia, Germany, come back into this country, all the time thinking that my, my application status for a more solid presence here is underway. But unfortunately, I'd kind of blown the paperwork out of the water by crossing a border. So in at the end of 1982, I was going to have to go back to England for a little while, spend some time over there while we got sorted. Some of the logistics sorted out for me to come back and be in America uh, legitimately and permanently, which is what I did. while I was gone, the album Love in the Western World came out because I'd recorded the album during... 81 and 82 it was going to come out anyway so i was gone unable to promote it the album came out got some good reviews and some kind of like mixed reviews um and so there i was in like in england in 1983 with one unreleased album called moving pictures and one barely released album called love in the western world and i began to write songs for what eventually would become Emotional Tourist. I'd also, having moved to Sacramento to Northern California, I'd also gotten fallen in with a motley crew from Berkeley who were involved in research into new religious movements, the Spiritual Counterfeits Project, uh, Christian theater, Christian poetry, Christian art. They published a magazine called Radix. And Radix was, starting to give me an opportunity to put some of my ideas about modern art in print. So I was leaving the country with an album barely coming out and a magazine article, Crying for a Vision, uh, which became the title chapter in the book that Rupert put out in 1991. All this to say, here I am in England in 1983, And I'm starting to write songs like Ghost Train Mm. and songs like Emotional Tourist and songs that are a bit different to uh, the stuff on Love in the Western World and also a bit different to the stuff on Moving Pictures. And I'm putting together all these songs. Plus, I'm traveling around and looking into things and researching and writing and I, I try to make sense of what's going on, because here I've hit another brick wall, it seems. I've got an album out that it's not going to do anything because I can't be there to promote it, which is you know, one of the reasons it's not going to do anything. I mean, the other reason is that maybe people didn't like it. I don't know. But here I am in England and I'm, I'm at a loose end just trying to make sense of my life, make like a sense of where, where I want to go in terms of art. And I began to, I was writing poetry and I was writing these this new set of songs. And when I eventually came back into the u s of A and we got the process further along and restarted, and we got things sorted out so that i could I could remain here, uh, I went into recording songs for this this new album, this emotional tourist album. And Exit Records was in the process of forming its its distribution relationships with uh, firstly A&M and then secondly with Island Records. Now I'm not, I cannot be quoted on all the dynamics, the mechanics or the politics of those particular relationships um, because I don't know that much about it. What I do know is that the material I recorded initially under the title Emotional Tourist was with suggestions from the producers as to what kind of songs I should include on the project to make it marketable. That project, and then the tracks I got to cut afterwards, what is the mystery? Touch, I think shadow play definitely. Some of the more leaning towards the arts, lyrical and musically exotic approaches. Things. None of this stuff really floated the boat of the companies that were interested in distributing exit that's that's my sense my sense is they heard the stuff went, well i don't know charlie peacock yeah mm-hmm. like that yeah 77 sure vector why not this guy don't know so that's the feeling i got and so there i was like mid to late 1980s with another recorded project called emotional tourist and some other tracks, finished. Luckily, we had a studio. Luckily, I had musicians like Mike Rowe and Mark Toodle and Steve Griffith, uh, Aaron Smith, Bongo Bob Smith, Charlie Peacock, that worked with me on fleshing these songs out and making them the best that they could be. I mean, I had all that. Uh, even as things began to go, uh, began to crumble a bit for, you know, Steve Scott, the pop legend. I um, mean, <laughs> you know, I had these guys who saw, saw it through to the bitter, <laughs> the bitter end, as it were, even down to the mixing. I mean, Charlie Peacock and I went and we mixed Emotional Tourist at one point in L.A. I know Steve Griffiths did, like, another mix. Firstly, he did some practice mixes at the Exit Studio but when it was apparent that my career as a rock god was kind of doomed, we ended up mixing at um, Fantasy Studios in Berkeley with Mike Rowe, myself, and Steve Griffith. And Steve turned out an astonishing, great, sterling mix of these tracks that somehow we'd have to find a way of getting them to come out that's when Randy Layton appeared sometime in like 1988 or 89 he showed up with alternative records and said well, you've got the artwork you've got a concept you've got a title you've got all these great tracks you've got remixed versions of love in the western world and the whale poem you why don't we just do this this compilation uh and i called it lost horizon at the time and he undertook to do all the heavy lifting on getting the project out pressed and distributed under the umbrella of alternative records so it was a great sacrificial labor of love for him and it kept my name in the eyes of you know dozens of adoring fans and uh, i i you know i am eternally grateful to that guy for the, the astonishing amount of work that he put into getting that stuff out there uh, and allowing it to be heard by those that would be interested, both in that project and then the follow-up project, Magnificent Obsession, where we took live tracks, alternate studio tracks from the Emotional Tourist Lost Horizon sessions. We took live versions of songs that even were originally slated for the Moving Pictures album. There's a live version of Father's Star on... um, Magnificent Obsession. And Randy put that out, too.
1: You go crying into the night Someone to give you back The sight that you never even had To start with
0: So Randy Layton and Alternative Records, uh, he's put out, you know, amazing other good stuff too. He's put out sampler albums, Surely Goodness and Misery mm-hmm. and um, stuff like that. In, in terms of me and my utter global visibility as a pop icon, uh, Randy Layton is uh, definitely there as a, a laborer in the field making that happen. And, and not just because he thinks I should be a pop star, but, but also because I think he, you know, he, as do I, believe in the substance and the, of the content. You know, this, this stuff is value to the conversation. And, you know, I can write the stuff and I can possibly get it down on tape, but it takes the likes of uh, Randy Layton and then much later on Greg Glover of um, Arena Rock to come in and say, yeah, we can put some muscle behind getting this out to the people that that need to hear it. England, Cambridge, August 1983, recalling the summer heat, heavy upon the still air, pushing me down church steps, basement, softly lit, stone walls, a small display of art by children from a distant land. Crudely drawn stars spin over trees of smoke, tiny figures in flight, colors spilling over the jagged, broken lines, lines that cannot name the way the light pushed up, flowered over them, ripped everything away. Across the room, shelved books and racked pamphlets. One thin volume tells how the early fathers entered the desert to pray, and once so engaged, some of them wept, shaken to the core by the darkness around them. The jagged edges, the splinters, the deep and tangled roots inside them. Back then, these tears were seen as a gift from God, the gift of tears. The eyes in the head were a fountain. A river flowing like the colors washing over the dark, broken lines in the artwork in another world, across the room. Later, I was by a river where some had gathered to release small paper boats with candles burning in memory of those caught up in this day's events so long ago. As I gazed into the water, these tiny dancing flames carried me with them on their journey to where the earth itself trembled, shook, the roof and the sliding screens took flight. Some of us rose in the air, whirling snowflakes. Only our shadows remained, splashed upon the crumbling wall below. Some were like blossoms, stripped from a branch by a furious storm and flung against the brilliant sky. I hid my face, but this sudden, angry light poured through my fingers, staining everything I looked at. I opened my mouth to scream, but there was nothing. After a while, I was walking towards the hills, past a river, choked with bodies. At times, I wished I was among them. Still, I kept searching for you, but in the end, I could not tell the petals from the ashes. The years have come and gone. So many waves breaking on the distant shore. I will sit each morning in this garden with this sea of raked white stones and I will seek to empty the mind. But some memories still cling. They are darker than the ink that flows from my brush. There was a song you used to sing. I still hang on to a bare thread of the tune but when I try to recall the words there is nothing but the sound of crickets in the field the distant temple bell Once again I am brought back this late afternoon to the side of this river These tiny paper boats, this soft cluster of floating lights, wandering stars glimpsed through the reflected clouds, or pilgrims following a path by the side of an ancient mountain. We went up the mountain to pray, see, and as the Master lifted his hands and prayed, his face glowed And his garments became brighter than a thousand suns and look two men were talking with him it was moses and elijah may peace be upon them they shone too and they spoke with the master about his departure from the city then they began to leave so i said master it is good that we are here Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. See, I was babbling like an idiot. Then a cloud came down. We were very afraid, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So at last returning as this summer's day draws to a close, I am watching the final paper boat disappear round the gentle curve of water. The sun slips lower and the river's edge darkens. Those gathered here begin to scatter. I turn away. My eyes are still dry. Perhaps I don't have the gift. We do what we can.
1: You mentioned that you had to go back to England for a time, and I know at least you got one poem out of it, The, uh, the Gift of Tears.
0: Astonishing things happened while I was in England in 1983. Essentially the gift of t- Cambridge, was so much stuff happened in Cambridge. A, I thought, I thought it was the end of the world. I mean, I thought, darn, you know, my one stab at pop stardom, uh, love in the Western world is being released across the pond. Uh, I was hanging out with and commiserating a fair amount with uh, Steve and Bev because they at that point were living in Notting Hill Gate, so we'd go out for like Indian food and and talk about records and stuff like that and music and art. And fairly, uh, Steve at that point was designing a board game called Hype, uh, which was about the, the rock business. But he also had another line going in which, I mean, he, by now he, he was a dead ring of a Charlie Chaplin. So he had like a kid's TV series on television in which he was playing a chaplain lookalike. I mean, Steve's approach to art was multifaceted and it was both ironic commentary on the institution of art, uh, the institution of popular culture, uh, as well as actually being, you know, like art with a capital A. So it was art with a capital A and it was ironic commentary on the art business. Because back then, it was, everything was postmodern and that was kind of conversations that people were having anyway that was part of what i was doing in england uh another thing that i did in england we'll 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 get to the poem we're we're moving towards the poem quite quickly but i'm just i just want to like list some of the strange things that happened to me in england that ended up impacting lots of other things up until now i published this article on the arts through radix magazine already now i was i was going i went to york and spent time looking into the York cycle of mystery plays, of medieval theater, uh, put on by various professional companies and guilds that were meant to tell the gospel story, because I was looking for models and case studies of religious and Christian art, and the, the the various cycles of medieval mystery plays struck me as something that I could possibly learn from while I was in Cambridge, Also, I discovered from a a, a time magazine did a a whole issue based on all things Japan. I didn't even buy the magazine. I read it at a newsstand and halfway through there was an article about Japanese contemporary culture and I was reading that and there was like a, a throwaway line in this article to the Christian and the Catholic minority in Japan. Uh, And the the cultural product that was linked to them were the, the novels of a guy called Shusaku Endo. So I put the magazine back in the rack and began to hit every bookstore I could find in Cambridge and buy up Shusaku Endo novels Essays, drama, everything I could find by this guy, I bought.
1: Now, for folks listening, they may know of at least one film that has been adapted from one of his books, right? The one that Martin Scorsese did. And apparently Scorsese Scorsese, had been wanting to do this for years and finally
0: got it made. He did a version of Silence. So, But here I was in 1983 Mm -hmm. looking at medieval mystery plays and Japanese novels looking for... What actually works in terms of Christian art? I was doing that. And because I ended up, this is a whole other story, but because I ended up writing some stuff on Endo, I got, ended up teaching in an arts and missions class in the mid-1980s, which ended up leading to me getting to go to Bali uh, in the late 80s. But back to uh, the United Kingdom in 1983, something else I saw in 1983 when i was in england was um I, I listened to a late night radio show uh run by a guy called john peel um, and uh, he would play uh experimental psychedelic rock. when i first heard him it was all like west coast um country joe and the fish the mothers of invention moby grape pink floyd and edgar Broughton Band, and okay. early fleetwood mac
1: i think uh, most americans if they know him it's because a lot of their favorite bands will put out an album called the peel sessions which were i guess yeah them, there you go them playing on his program
0: exactly exactly well one of the bands that john peel gave a lot of time to was a band called the birthday party by a guy called Nick Cave. <laughs> and in 1983, Nick Cave and the birthday party were definitely a kind of a quasi-industrial junkyard kind of sound aesthetic with very dramatic performance and vocals. And I'd I heard a fair amount of the birthday party on Peel show. and when they were appearing in North London, uh, and i was in london i decided to go see him so i went and saw him and it was so nick cave and the birthday party in 1983 was a scary proposition you're in a room packed full of i mean and this is this is like early 80s england so it's proto-goth proto-industrial lots of black leather shades back hair all very post-punk very very goth-looking, white face, and the the music, both the support act, SPK. (laughs) And the birthday party with extremely far-out-on-edge, dramatic, nerve-wracking, industrial-sounding with the, uh, Nick Cave's performance, absolutely frightening. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I watching him, I just going, oh my goodness, this is a sight to behold. Nick Cave has come a long way since those days. I mean, I mean I, then I saw a kind of gentler Nick Cave uh, appear in, in uh, filmmaker Wim Wenders' uh, Wings of Desire. Mm. And uh, then the, the more recent work that Nick Cave has put out. With my voice, I am calling you. You're a young man, waking, covered in blood that is not yours. And some of the conversations that Kate has been around, I think, places him on the, should we say, the very far fringes of faith so i would understand and his most recent work his albums like um the skeleton tree and ghostine cave has traveled a long way but he's maintained his intensity it's just that the the story that cave's intensity was telling in 1983 and the story that cave's intensity is telling now i i want to believe are two different stories Anyway, all that to say, I was in Cambridge in 1983 processing my experience with Nick Cave, medieval mystery plays, Japanese novelist Shusaku Endo, all that. And I've got a portable typewriter and I'm trying to um, do some writing of my own. I went for a walk every day and I stopped off in a, the SPCK bookstore in Cambridge, the Society for the Propagation of Christian Knowledge. And I walked down into their basement, and there was an exhibit. And the exhibit was called The Unforgettable Fire. And the exhibit was of children's art based on their observations and their experience of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki.
1: Another famous pop icon apparently saw that show as well.
0: Yes, I would think so, yeah. Uh, and a friend of Steve Fernie's apparently. So, I, I saw that. I'm looking at that art, am looking at children's art that is based on either their direct experience or accounts that they've heard of the bombing of those cities in Japan. The other side of the basement is a rack with a bunch of pamphlets in it. I'm looking at different pamphlets. There's pamphlets on prayer, pamphlets on church history, pamphlets on prayer and meditation from the early church fathers. So I've got this juxtaposition in my head. I've got one side of the room, all this artwork, based on the Hiroshima experience. And the other side of the room, all these pamphlets about prayer and meditation, mysticism, self-reflection in a light, in a darkness, some of it sourced from the early church fathers. So I've got that juxtaposition in my head. Then that Sunday, which was August the 6th, which was... Hiroshima Day. The CND, which is the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, was doing a commemoration event on the banks of the River Cam in which they floated candles in little paper boats to represent the souls of the departed down the River Cam. So I went to that event and the poem, The Gift of Tears, is a combination of my is based on a combination of my experiences in the basement of the SPCK bookstore with the children's art show and all those pamphlets about the inner life, coupled with my experience of standing on the riverbank and looking at all these little paper boats with candles in them, which are meant to represent the souls of those departed during the, the, uh, the bombing of those two Japanese cities. August the 6th, also on the, uh, I think, the Eastern Orthodox Church calendar, commemoration of uh, the transfiguration experience in the mount where Peter, James, and John see Jesus, Moses, and Elijah on the mountaintop. So the poem, The Gift of Tears, uh, I wanted to juxtapose all those images and my experience of reflecting on the the Hiroshima thing Intercut with a reflection on the Feast of the Transfiguration, which is why the poem suddenly jumps into like a first-person account of Peter's, what it was like to be on the mount with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. But rather than like, you know, telegraph or signal or anything, I just wanted to juxtapose those two phenomena. Mm -hmm. in in the context of the poem that's the gift of tears and the gift of tears this was a reference to something I read in one of the early church fathers pamphlets where they said that tears the gift of tears were was a sign of uh, sort of interior brokenness and contrition on the part of the prayer the person praying it was referred to as a gift because it was regarded at least in some circles, among the early Church Fathers, that this kind of this breaking down and weeping in contrition uh, over one's own sinfulness was regarded as a spiritual gift,
1: mm.
0: hence the reference to the gift
1: of tears. And you end it by saying <laughs> that you don't have the gift, but we all do what we can. And What made me think about some of the things I wrestle with, especially growing up, that a lot of people seem to have gifts that I never had, and of course sometimes you're made to feel inferior, but you'll come to find out, you know, I've got other gifts.
0: Exactly. I mean, I just thought that you got all the terrible things that the poem is alluding to in terms of the bombing. Then all the wonderful things that the poem is alluding to in terms of the transfiguration. And then you come back to the river and the commemoration of the bombing. And you turn away and, you know, my eyes are dry. And it's, you know, the idea being, well, even without the tears, we do what we can. And then I, I looked, I counted up, afterwards and the actual syllabic count of those last three lines are five seven five which is the form for the japanese haiku
1: <laughs> wow
0: yeah I, th- I think i wanted to convey the sense that as numbing as this information is there is hope initially or primarily from the, the, like the reality of the transfiguration but there is hope that even even if you can't cry you can't do something
1: well, amen. You had mentioned that you were doing this research on medieval mystery plays? Research is
0: a rather grand term for what I did. I'm not an expert in medieval mystery plays. Um, More of a fanboy, and I collected a small library on the subject of medieval mystery plays. Again, while I was in England Mm. uh, for 1983, one of the things I attempted to do was draft a novel that used the medieval mystery plays and the English countryside as a sort of a frame of reference or some sort of... for imagery or symbolism or something. You know, one of the characters was very interested in the, in the uh, proposed novel, was very interested in trying to stage a local version of the mystery, the mystery plays. So I went out and um, got some books on the medieval mystery plays and I became uh, not only intrigued by the mystery plays, as a possible like metaphor or framing device or something for this uh, long abandoned novel but just in the attitude that they took to the arts uh and faith uh, in that context the medieval mystery plays were basically very like an amateur dramatic society as it were made up of the various uh, trades or guilds so the horseshoe makers and the wagon wheel makers and the you know the rivet makers and the roof tile makers each would take on a portion of a huge cycle of plays which basically move from genesis through to the last judgment with focus on the gospel stories these various guilds would, would each stage a particular episode or cluster of episodes to do with a story drawn from uh, biblical sources and church traditions. I mean, the, the central issue of the Corpus Christi mystery plays was that they, they, uh, uh, at least in some circles, was, was the idea of using the plays as an, uh, an apologetic for a certain understanding of the Eucharist certain understanding of the real presence of christ in the in the bread and the wine when celebrated in Euchar- in a eucharistic fa- uh, manner fashion uh during the eucharist these plays were uh, i think were intended as an apologetic for this particular set of ideas about the real presence of christ in the elements of communion And as I said, they were put together by various guilds. And you had the York cycle, the Chester cycle, even the Cornish cycle, and there are other cycles as well. And buried deep in my bookshelves of various versions, uh, whether from York or from Chester uh, and elsewhere. Uh, The Wakefield mystery plays I'm looking at right now. So Wakefield, Chester and York. And then um, Tony Harrison did a sort of a modernized version of the mysteries um, probably at the, around the time that I was looking into this so I've got I've got collections of plays and I've got various books that, that deal with ritual ceremony and drama in the medieval church or the relationship of these mystery plays to the sort of the development of theater in England. And I even wrote about it for a Radix magazine. So that's that's the gist of it. Various well, kinds of organizations taking on bits of the biblical story, sometimes leavening their bits with contemporary cultural commentary, so that if you have a play about um, the infant Jesus being born, you you might come across a play in which there's a comedic interlude in which the shepherds are either complaining about uh, the local gentry or land distribution or there's a play about a particular shepherd who steals a sheep and then hides the stolen sheep and then when he's discovered by the other shepherds insists that it's the baby Christ and they can't go in there uh, to look at this stolen sheep so there'd be like social commentary, And they were all intended to provide basically um, a long, dramatic, sort of apologetic, as it were, for, they were performed in public, on wagons. There wasn't like a staged theater, uh, at least at first, it was, they were performed on carts and wagons that were being pulled, so it was very much a street theater approach. However, for myself, I've not seen that much of medieval mystery plays. What I have, I've seen more kabuki, Japanese kabuki. I've seen more Balinese and Javanese shadow plays when I was uh, in Southeast Asia. So there's, there's that kind of irony. There's also the fact that there are certain, certain kinds of parallels in the way the drama and the audience kind of work together in these, in these different cultures. And then in terms of like a wormhole into a parallel universe, it was while I was in England looking at these medieval plays and while I was in England writing songs about sort of emotional and psychic disengagement. But I was also going out for walks to clear my head after a day of furious typing. And it was at a newsstand that I read the Time magazine about. Japanese economy and culture, and came across a reference to the novelist Shusaku Endo. Mm -hmm. And because I was in Cambridge at the time, I went out and bought everything I could find by Shusaku Endo, including Silence. Mm -hmm. Read that and also wrote about that for Radix Magazine. And as a result of the Radix Magazine article, I got invited to teach uh, in a summer school on art and mission. And as a result, this was like 1986 down in pasadena and as a result of doing that i learned about the um, arts conference in bali that was coming up two or three years down the road and i ended up going to that and the rest is history man
1: we'll pick back up with mr scott in a few episodes in the meantime, if you're still in an exit records mood, on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 203, we talk with Randy Layton himself about both a history of the label, but his own history as well. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbeam.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.